Hello. I'm Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to episode five, part three of the uh, Arliss <laughs> Perry murder. Specific. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we left off with the police finding a mysterious set of fingerprints in the Stanford Memorial Church. They're not really sure who they belong to. Um, they've kind of ruled out uh, Bruce Perry, who is Arliss's um, newlywed husband, which is just so tragic. And then they've ruled out Stephen Crawford, um, the ninth security guard. So Arliss had a small memorial in Palo Alto where there were only a few people who attended because she didn't really have a lot of friends there yet. Um, a lot of her co-workers were there, um, and this is actually when the co-workers make the connection that this mysterious guy that Arliss met with on October 11th is not her husband, Bruce. Yeah. So they had never met Bruce before, and so when they actually met him and saw that he didn't look anything like the guy Arliss had seen on the 11th, they were like, oh my God, <laughs> um, we have to tell the police. Yeah. And so that's where... Um, they kind of talk to the police about this weird guy um, who has a very similar description to what the two witnesses mm-hmm. saw. So, and yeah. fingers. And he could have the same fingers <laughs> as the prints that were found. Who knows? So Arliss's <laughs> body was sent back to Bismarck where it was buried. The grave marker that was placed there temporarily was actually stolen which made people think that Arliss may have had a stalker who followed her to Palo Alto and then killed her only to return to Bismarck and then defile her gravesite. Um, there's that makes a, sense. Yeah, there's a theory that's a little bit more intense that goes along with that, and I will definitely break into that theory pretty soon here. So since then, there haven't been any major breaks in the case um, until just last year, which we'll talk about too. Um, but the case remained open in the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department, um, and it was just kind of like in the back of everyone's mind, which I kind of get because it's really gruesome. It may involve the occult. It's just a lot of stuff. So I can understand why people were like, this is a terrible murder. And it's like there's a super violent offender out there. Yes, exactly. So they want to be able to figure out who this person is, obviously, so that they could prevent more crimes like this happening. So um, one supposed eyewitness came forward saying that he saw a satanic ritual taking place in the church the night Arliss was killed. Yes, Um, this is what I've been waiting for. Yes. So this theory is crazy, but I love it so much and I want to believe it, but it's just hard to believe. Well, tell me and I'll find something believable about it. We'll see if we can justify (laughs) it. Okay, so the eyewitness's name is Brian McCracken. Which is a fun name to say. And he came forward in 2016 saying he thought a classical musician from New York was responsible for the murder of Arliss because of some flute music he heard that night. Which could have been the mysterious sound that our other eyewitness had heard as Mm -hmm. well. So here we go. So McCracken claims that he was walking past the church at around midnight and heard mysterious flute music coming inside. Just like a little sound, a little flute music. Like a little Phantom of the Opera style. (laughs) Flutes. 
music. So magically, he walked through the locked doors of this church, which were confirmed locked <laughs> by the security guard, Bruce Perry, and police. The killer could have let him in. They could have. He could have let him in because they like, were locked man from the doing outside. some fun stuff. Exactly. So it's fine. Um, but McCracken's in there. He's following the creepy flute music. And inside was a strange sight. And I quote, This guy is up at the lectern, a young skinny white guy, and he has an Afro wig on, a light-colored large Afro wig. Looked very striking. And he's playing a flute, a large silver flute. To the right of him on the altar was this nude girl just lying on the altar. She has candlesticks burning, one on either side of her. End quote. Very descriptive here from Mr. McCracken. Yeah, that's like a, so descriptive. <laughs> I know. That's, just, that's kind of weird. That makes is. me believe him. I know, because like the light Afro wig is very such a random thing to add in there. I know. And like, I guess, I don't know. I, I would be, if I were the eyewitnesses and I had seen the guy walking through the doors and he was wearing an Afro wig, I would have clocked that. Yeah. Like I would have remembered him wearing a wig, especially if it was like a white guy. Because that's not a traditional style for white men. Mm-hmm. So it would have been a wig. Yeah. And I'm sure it would have looked weird. Um. So anyway. So McCracken said the girl looked over at him and smiled. And the guy was clearly not happy that he was in the church. Um. And so he just kind of left. And he hadn't talked about the incident until now. Um. He said the whole thing kind of looked like a black mass ceremony, which. What? Okay. Okay. Um, the only thing that's like <laughs> not that's like solely not believable about this is him getting in and out of there. Right. But I mean, it's not impossible that someone let him in. And no, it's not. And I feel like but he seems very determined that he was let he he just went into the church. So he doesn't mention well, that maybe somebody it let him was in. unlocked for a period of time. That's also could and be a possibility. Re-locked. Yes. That's um, actually a better possibility. I don't know why I didn't think yeah, of that one first. I yeah. Know. I don't know what the locking mechanisms were. I don't know if there was an actual lock or if it was just done by a key and you couldn't unlock it from the inside. The door that was open was forced open, so it the lock was broken. Um, and I'm assuming that's probably because you couldn't unlock it from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so my best guess is that the doors were probably still locked and this person is not telling the truth. But I... I want him to be telling the truth because it's so interesting to think that there was a black mass ceremony happening and a creepy flute player well, okay. was like conducting it. It's just very interesting. Okay, so killer mm-hmm. strikes her. Yes. Hides her body. He hides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he like sends out his vibes to all yes. his Satan friends and right. they're like, get over here. Yep. We've got a sacrificial person ready yes. to be we're ready sacrificed. to go yeah. and then they all get there and they like open some side door and they're mm-hmm. having their their thing and it's like after midnight but before bruce gets there right and they do the whole thing and then this guy like sees it <laughs> and then everyone leaves except for like one guy mm-hmm. or like just someone 
Yeah. And then the they... guy that they make clean up the mess. Yes. He's got to clean it up. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. he got in trouble at the last meeting. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. he came late. Mm-hmm. How dare he? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so like, rude. Yes. So they so were they like, obviously you're going to have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they're like, you guys locked me in here. <laughs> and so he has to like bust out. Right. And they obviously use their magical powers to unlock the doors. Well, maybe one of them has a key to it. Right, exactly. He, like, somehow had a key to the door. Pickpockets the security guard. Yes, clearly. And he copies the key, like, weeks before this is supposed to happen. Because, obviously, they planned this. This is a planned ordeal. This is a planned ordeal. So, you know. So, that's what happened. That's not impossible. It's not impossible. Is it probable? No. No. Anyway, so um, the reason <laughs> McCracken, yeah, yeah, exactly. So the reason McCracken didn't come forward until 2016 was because that he didn't hear much about Arliss and her bizarre death. Um, so when he did figure it out, he did research on the Stanford marching band because remember the guy was a flute player. Oh, so that he makes just kind of like yeah. yeah, which I actually thought was a pretty recent, not recent, a pretty reasonable deduction to make. Um, and he found a guy who had an afro on the marching band, and he hired a private investigator who actually found the musician. And then they both went to this poor guy's concert, and they asked him a whole bunch of questions about that night, pretending to be journalists. So that's fun. I like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the police said that they seriously doubt that this music- musician is a suspect. Um, and the musician, whose name was not in the article I read about this statement, he said that he had never been involved in anything criminal, and I kind of believe him, but I also want to believe McCracken, so I'm conflicted. <laughs> anyway, so some famous names are about to show up on our suspect list um, because there are quite a few active serial killers during this time period. Um, and I think it's really interesting how this one case is like super brutal and ritualistic, yet it doesn't really fit any of the like patterns of the active serial killers. There are a few... Things. Manson was a little ritualistic. He was, but he also had like a vendetta against yeah. those people. He so, really, really thought a race war was going to happen. Yes, he did. So incorrect. Anyway, so Ted Bundy was considered to be a suspect in this case, considering the similarities between um, the way he killed several of his victims via strangulation and how gross he was as a person. And if you know the... <laughs> Just generally how gross yeah. he was. I hate him so much. But if you know the Bundy case, one of his first, um, like, victims who actually survived, um, she also had a, she like, the metal pipe that had been used to brutalize her had also been partially inserted into her vagina as well. So I think that was probably why the police connected to him. Um, but the police found out that he had been buying gas in Utah at the very moment she was killed. So we have Bundy in a specific place, so we can't tie him to this case. Um, people have also considered the Zodiac, but he never took credit for it. And we know that he loves to take credit for things. He would be like, guys, look what I did. Like you guys, I displayed this for you. Um, so he did write his last four letters the same year in California, I believe. And then he wrote one on the East Coast in 1980, right? Okay. So he didn't claim to kill her, which is why I would bring some speculation to that assumption. He also likes to kill people with a gun or, um, a A knife. knife. So this isn't really his style of killing either. 
So another person who is said to be accused of this is David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the son of Sam. Um, so this is kind of interesting just because Berkowitz is the wrong coast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. <laughs> um, so Berkowitz is said to have joined a cult in Minnow, which is just 110 miles from Bismarck, where Arliss is from. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I know. Weird, That's right? cool. I know. So the reason the Santa Clara police even thought about Berkowitz is because he had written down a very disturbing message in a book of witchcraft he had. The message read, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain. Okay, what? Followed to California, Stanford University. Like, that just gave me goosebumps reading that out. Isn't that creepy? Oh, my gosh. I know. Yeah, so that's pretty terrifying. But, of course, all of that information can be gleaned from any piece of news that you get about Arliss's murder. That's true. So, anyway, so Santa Clara police went to NYC and even questioned Berkowitz about it after he had sent them an, a letter saying that he knew some facts about her killing. But Berkowitz denied everything when the police actually showed up and the documents about the interview showcase the fact that Berkowitz denied everything. Why try to act like you did it and then back out? That's weird. Yeah, so this actually was a pattern for Berkowitz. Um, He wrote letters to police and newspapers claiming that he had been involved in all of these other famous crimes and that he was part of this cult, this like mega cult that all of these serial killers were a part of. Um, And, I mean, first of all, the (laughs) David Berkowitz, said that the reason he killed all of the people he killed was because his neighbor's dog told him to do it. Yeah. So he's insane. And um, and dealing with a lot of, obviously, schizophrenia and some other mental issues. So he also said, in addition to, like, the weird cult, um, that, like, he had spoken with the person who had killed Arliss, which would have been impossible because, again, like you said, different coastlines um, because he was active in New York. So it was very interesting, the statements he made to police and then denied to police. Yeah, that's weird. Yes. And so there's actually a set of laws that passed after the son of Sam was passing out all of this information for profit. And it's called the son of Sam laws, which basically states that criminals can't profit off of their crimes. So they can't ask for money from newspapers or um, novelists, which happened. Um, he got money from a novelist for interviews, uh, in order to promote criminal behavior. Right. So, um, the novelist that I was, yeah, I think so too. I think it's, I can't believe that they didn't have that before. I think it, I guess I wouldn't have thought to make that a lot. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's a good one to have. So, um, Maury Terry is a journalist from Long Island who wrote a book called the ultimate evil, which is basically a book about ritualistic killings. And he connects Berkowitz to the killing of Arliss. He claims that Arliss basically like pissed off a member of this mega cult and they followed her to Palo Alto and killed her. This theory could also be backed up by the fact that people thought she had been followed by a stalker um, mm-hmm. and her grave site had been defiled back home. Um, so, which it had no reason to be defiled in Bismarck. Like she was an upstanding member of the community. People liked her. Um, there was also a um, group. I don't remember if it was Scientologists, but it was some sort of like anti-religion culty group that um, Arliss had pissed off because she had tried to go and 
hand out flyers about oh, no. Christ um, in front of one of their buildings. And so they got mad about that. And so some people say, well, they just defiled her gravesite because they were still located in Bismarck yeah. and they, they didn't like her. Or it could just be like a um, little teenage boy. Yeah, like, like stealing something like, that ooh, happens it's creepy. too. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the book, The Ultimate Evil, is still available to read. I haven't read it. I'd actually be very interested to read it because I feel like it's just like full of bullshit, which I'd be in, I would consume that so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so this lead was a complete dead end. Berkowitz is not the answer. Just he's an epic liar. <laughs> Terrible. Um and also, like, the fact that they blamed the, blamed the Church of Satan for all of this is also ridiculous. Like, we had our huge discussion before. Um, the fear of Satan is ingrained into the minds of little religious kids. So, like, evil has a name and it's Satan <laughs> for people like that. Um, so if you have a church that's set up, in a way to mock Christianity, but it still has Satan tacked onto it, they're going to fear that group and obviously associate them with violent things and great evil, which is not what was right. happening. And, like, even though we, like, earlier established that there's not an actual church that worships Satan, that, I mean, there's probably people that actually worship Satan oh, that yeah. are just, there's like, individuals they might have, it. like, an organized religion that's just not recognized. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, those people probably are out there, but it's, like, I think it's reasonable to assume that there could be a satanic connection just based mm -hmm. on how ritualistic it was, but it's not really logical to say that it definitely is the case or that it's absolutely or that it's to blame. Right. And there's a lot of different factors that could be involved in that. And I I'm it's weird that I'm arguing on behalf of the Church of Satan. But um I think the actual Church of Satan stands up for individualism and doesn't actually believe in Satan. Yeah, they're not like a hail Satan. They're like, no, we'll pretend to hail Satan so that you'll stop. Yeah, to make you feel uncomfortable. Weird. Yeah. Yes. To assert our rights as members of this country. Yeah. So anyway. So yeah. So Satanism gets thrown in there. Um, and the OG Night Stalker was tossed mm -hmm. in as well. Um, another dead end. Um, the Mansons have been... Well, Manson was blamed for it. The three Masons were blamed for it. it literally everyone. <laughs> Just like a ton of stuff. Right. So Manson would make a little bit of sense. Yes, I think. That would be like the most convincing just because he, mm -hmm. like, I mean, they like wrote in blood on walls and yes, tortured they did some people. pretty creepy stuff. They were pretty insane, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I could see that connection, but so who knows? Um, well, actually, we know. I know. Oh, we do? Okay. I know. <laughs> um, so it's 43 years since then. And I just wanted to talk about our two lead suspects, which was Bruce and Stephen Crawford, because those are the only two that, like, were there and make sense. So Bruce goes on to get his medical degree and became a world-renowned mental health professional who focused on trauma in children. He lives in Texas and has, um, in fact, remarried since the incident, I think. I think. I stalked, <laughs> I stalked him a little bit on some of, like, his social media platforms, uh -huh. and I never see him mention, like, his wife or anything like that. But, of course, he's also a medical professional, so his private life probably doesn't become integrated with his online life because he has, like, 
two books and has done a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so, yeah. So what I found interesting, though, was that when the case reopened last year and when the real killer was actually found, he didn't have much to say on the matter. He made like one statement to one newspaper. Um, but other than that, he stayed pretty silent on the issue, which I kind of understand. It was probably really difficult. They had just gotten married. So it's just, yeah. So anyway, um, he's done a lot of really cool things. He um, was involved in helping those who were victims of severe violence. He was even consulted about the Columbine shootings, which happened here in Colorado in 1999. According to his website, he's been instrumental in several terrible tragedies, most recently the Sandy Hook shootings. So shout out to Dr. Perry for all of his good work. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he has a Twitter, too. Like I said, I stalked him. Um, it wasn't really stalking. It was information gathering. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's obviously had a great influence on many people. Um, people tweet at him all the time. He, like, retweets people talking about his one of his books or one of his lectures. Um, he was in, like, three documentaries. Wow. Um, yeah. One of which received a BAFTA award. It's called The Imposter. It looks really good. Um, it's about an abducted child and... Another child replacing that abducted child, but it's not the real child, but they claim to be that child. It's what? really interesting, and I want to watch it. But, um, yeah, so I won a BAFTA award for that, and then he even did an interview on, like, 60 Minutes with Oprah. Um, so he's pretty cool. Uh, Stephen Crawford worked on the campus for years. Um, he was an Air Force veteran, and in 1971, he started as a cop at Stanford and then was demoted to night watchman when the campus kind of reorganized the system. He was really not happy about it because they, like, took away his gun, kind of like his, like, big macho man sort of, like, police status. But he was one of the few that were actually selected to continue on employment on oh, okay. Stanford camp- campus, so I'm not really sure why he was mad about that. I mean, I would be grateful that they had selected me to continue working um, if they made such drastic cuts. They, yeah. they, like, took out, like, three quarters of the the workforce there. I think it's, like, so. a red flag if you're upset that you don't have a gun anymore. <laughs> I know. And he was also, like, an Air Force veteran, so he was probably used to carrying around a far- firearm. Okay. He kind of, like, was trained with that. I'm a, but little, con- a, I'm a still, little concerned about him. It's a little odd. So, in the 70s, Crawford actually stole a lot of things from Stanford campus, including a really nice sheepskin diploma that he had engraved with his own name, saying that he had graduated from Stanford. Oh, okay. So, some sort of, like, weird pride thing. And then he also stole rare books from the library and a few bronze statues from around campus. So he's a he night watchman. He stole a bronze statue? Mm-hmm. How does one yes. do that? I don't even That's know. That's kind of impressive. I know, but it's interesting because, like, his neighbors would always say, like, oh, he has bronze statues in his house, like, all the time. That's so, so weird. That was, like, iconic for Steven. Um, so he, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So he went undetected for these crimes until his now ex-wife, Turned him in in 1992, um, during which was apparently a really bad divorce. So I could just imagine that happening. She's like, I'm telling everyone. Oh, my the gosh. Truth if you don't sign these documents right now. And then he's like, I'm not signing them. And then she turns him into the yes. police. Oh, my gosh. I was, like, not suspecting him at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's a little creepy. Um, so after, like, his divorce and getting in trouble for all of the thievery... Um, he moved to San Jose, California, and he lived off of welfare. He lived in a relatively small apartment 
And um, his landlord said that he didn't really talk much, he didn't have a job, and he just kind of kept to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, former San Jose Mercury News columnist Scott Harehold, who I mentioned at the beginning, spoke with Mike Shembury, who was a former police detective. And Shembury basically told him that this wasn't just a random person who broke into the church and killed Arliss. The killer had to have known the church layout and the church schedule. He said this because of the setup of the body and the semen next to the body. And the use of the candles would have taken up a bit of time to set up and actually do. He estimated about 45 minutes for all of this to take place, which would mean the killer needed the place to be empty and would know when the church was completely vacant for a long period of time. So I have to add my two cents in here. I agree with Shembri on all accounts. I also think that this person would have had to have known Arliss and known how religious she was um, or at least known that people showed up in the church late at night. Um, yeah. So oh and maybe gosh. yeah, exactly. So and of Why course... Why is it so like weird? I know. Well <laughs> um, so I'm not sure. Uh, the FBI did a small profile on this case which actually stated that the killer was probably a loner 17 to 22. He probably took a trophy and keeps a detailed diary. They were accurate in everything. Um, well they were inaccurate in everything except for k- taking the trophy. Arliss's glasses were missing from the crime scene. So she was very nearsighted. She would have had them on, but they couldn't find them anywhere. So that was the one piece of evidence Gross. that was missing. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But, like, mm-hmm. why why so ritualistic and, like, creepy? Is it, like, a like to throw people off their game and be like, oh, it can't right. be, like, this, like, friendly security guard who's super cooperative? Exactly. So that's always my assumption when crimes are very overly yeah. done. Um, which, it's like— a good idea. It is. It's kind of <laughs> clever because it can like throw off everyone and also speculation immediately goes out to these weird groups yeah, of people. Like, oh my God, it's Charles um, Manson. Yes, exactly. And this was a perfect time to do that because there were so many weird active serial killers mm-hmm. that could be attached to this case. And then they could just like blame those people without actually any evidence proving otherwise. So yeah. So with that, we'll leave off for part Three, and then we'll do a brief part four where we'll close up everything off and uh, we'll obviously confirm who the killer really is, which I think you have a pretty good idea, though. I was like, are my we're leading suspicions down a wrong? Pretty, we're leading down a pretty accurate path here. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.